Autumn presents My Personality Transplant Written by Olga Hazan One morning last summer, I woke up and announced, to no one in particular, I choose to be happy today. Next, I journaled about the things I was grateful for and tried to think more positively about my enemies and myself. When someone later criticized me on Twitter, I suppressed my rage and tried to sympathize with my hater. Then, to loosen up and expand my social skills, I headed to an improv class. I was midway through an experiment, sample size one, to see whether I could change my personality. Because these activities were supposed to make me happier, I approached them with the desperate hope of a supplicant kneeling at a shrine. Psychologists say that personality is made up of five traits, extroversion, or how sociable you are, conscientiousness, or how self-disciplined and organized you are, agreeableness, or how warm and empathetic you are, openness, or how receptive you are to new ideas and activities, and neuroticism, or how depressed or anxious you are. People tend to be happier and healthier when they score higher on the first four traits and lower on neuroticism. I'm pretty open and conscientious, but I'm low on extroversion, middling on agreeableness, and off the charts on neuroticism. Researching the science of personality, I learned that it was possible to deliberately mold these five traits, to an extent, by adopting certain behaviors— I began wondering whether the tactics of personality change could work on me. I've never really liked my personality, and other people don't like it either. In grad school, a partner and I were assigned to write fake obituaries for each other by interviewing our families and friends. The nicest thing my partner could shake out of my loved ones was that I really enjoy grocery shopping— Recently, a friend named me maid of honor in her wedding. On the website for the event, she described me as strongly opinionated and fiercely persistent. Not wrong, but not what I want on my tombstone. I've always been bad at parties because the topics I bring up are too depressing, such as everything that's wrong with my life and everything that's wrong with the world and the futility of doing anything about either. Neurotic people, twitchy and suspicious, can often detect things that less sensitive people simply don't register, writes the personality psychologist Brian Little in Who Are You Really? This is not conducive to relaxed and easy living. Rather than being motivated by rewards, neurotic people tend to fear risks and punishments. We ruminate on negative events more than emotionally stable people do. Many, like me, spend a lot of money on therapy and brain medications. And while there's nothing wrong with being an introvert, we tend to underestimate how much we'd enjoy behaving like extroverts. People have the most friends they will ever have at age 25, and I am much older than that and never had very many friends to begin with. Besides, My editors wanted me to see if I could change my personality, and I'll try anything once. I'm open to experiences. Maybe I, too, could become a friendly extrovert who doesn't carry around emergency Xanax. I gave myself three months. 
The best-known expert on personality change is Brent Roberts, a psychologist at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Our interview in June felt, to me, a bit like visiting an evidence-based spiritual guru. He had a Zoom background of the Red Rocks of Sedona and the answers to all my big questions. Roberts has published dozens of studies showing that personality can change in many ways over time, challenging the notion that our traits are set like plaster, as the psychologist William James put it in 1887. But other psychologists still sometimes tell Roberts that they simply don't believe it. There is a deep-seated desire on the part of many people to think of personality as unchanging, he told me. It simplifies your world in a way that's quite nice. Because then, you don't have to take responsibility for what you're like. Don't get too excited. Personality typically remains fairly stable throughout your life, especially in relation to other people. If you were the most outgoing of your friends in college, you will probably still be the bubbliest among them in your 30s. But our temperaments tend to shift naturally over the years. We change a bit during adolescence and a lot during our early 20s and continue to evolve into late adulthood. Generally, people grow less neurotic and more agreeable and conscientious with age, a trend sometimes referred to as the maturity principle. Longitudinal research suggests that careless, sullen teenagers can transform into gregarious seniors who are sticklers for the rules. One study of people born in Scotland in the mid-1930s, which admittedly had some methodological issues, found no correlation between participants' conscientiousness at ages 14 and 77. A later study by Rodica Damien, a psychologist at the University of Houston and her colleagues, assessed the personalities of a group of American high school students in 1960 and again 50 years later. They found that 98% of the participants had changed at least one personality trait. Even our career interests are more stable than our personalities, though our jobs can also change us. In one study, people with stressful jobs became more introverted and neurotic within five years. With a little work, you can nudge your personality in a more positive direction, Several studies have found that people can meaningfully change their personalities, sometimes within a few weeks, by behaving like the sort of person they want to be. Students who put more effort into their homework became more conscientious. In a 2017 meta-analysis of 207 studies, Roberts and others found that a month of therapy could reduce neuroticism by about half the amount it would typically decline over a person's life. Even a change as minor as taking up puzzles can have an effect. One study found that senior citizens who played brain games and completed crossword and Sudoku puzzles became more open to experiences. Though most personality change studies have tracked people for only a few months or a year afterward, the changes seem to stick for at least that long. When researchers ask, people typically say they want the success-oriented traits, to become more extroverted, more conscientious, and less neurotic. Roberts was surprised that I wanted to become more agreeable. 
Lots of people think they're too agreeable, he told me. They feel they've become doormats. Toward the end of our conversation, I asked Roberts whether there's anything he would change about his own personality. He admitted that he's not always very detail-oriented, a.k.a. conscientious. He also regretted the anxiety, a.k.a. neuroticism, he experienced early in his career. Grad school was a disconcerting experience, he said. The son of a Marine and an artist, he felt that his classmates were all brilliant and smart and understood the world of academia better than he did. I was struck by how similar his story sounded to my own. My parents are from the Soviet Union and barely understand my career in journalism. I went to crappy public schools and a little-known college— I've notched every minor career achievement through night sweats and meticulous emails and aching computer shoulders. Neuroticism had kept my inner fire burning, but now it was suffocating me with its smoke. To begin my transformation, I called Nathan Hudson, a psychology professor at Southern Methodist University who created a tool to help people alter their personality. For a 2019 paper, Hudson and three other psychologists devised a list of challenges for students who wanted to change their traits. For, say, increased extroversion, a challenge would be to introduce yourself to someone new. Those who completed the challenges experienced changes in their personality over the course of the 15-week study, Hudson found. Faking it until you make it seems to be a viable strategy for personality change, he told me. But before I could tinker with my personality, I needed to find out exactly what that personality consisted of. So I logged on to a website Hudson had created and took a personality test, answering dozens of questions about whether I liked poetry and parties, whether I acted wild and crazy, whether I worked hard. I radiate joy, got a strongly disagree. I disagreed that we should be tough on crime and that I try not to think about the needy. I had to agree, but not strongly, that I believe that I am better than others. I scored in the 23rd percentile on extroversion. Very low, especially when it came to being friendly or cheerful. Meanwhile, I scored very high on conscientiousness and openness and average on agreeableness, my high level of sympathy for other people making up for my low level of trust in them. Finally, I came to the source of half my breakups 90% of my therapy appointments, and most of my problems in general. Neuroticism. I'm in the 94th percentile. Extremely high. I prescribed myself the same challenges that Hudson had given his students. To become more extroverted, I would meet new people. To decrease neuroticism, I would meditate often and make gratitude lists— To increase agreeableness, the challenges included sending supportive texts and cards, thinking more positively about people who frustrate me, and, regrettably, hugging. In addition to completing Hudson's challenges, I decided to sign up for improv in hopes of increasing my extroversion and reducing my social anxiety. 
To cut down on how pissed off I am in general, and because I'm an overachiever, I also signed up for an anger management class. Hudson's findings on the mutability of personality seem to endorse the ancient Buddhist idea of no self, no core you. To believe otherwise, the sutras say, is a source of suffering. Similarly, Brian Little writes that people can have multiple authenticities, that you can sincerely be a different person in different situations. He proposes that people have the ability to temporarily act out of character by adopting free traits, often in the service of an important personal or professional project. If a shy introvert longs to schmooze the bosses at the office holiday party, they can grab a canapé and make the rounds. The more you do this, Little says, the easier it gets. Staring at my test results, I told myself, this will be fun. After all, I had changed my personality before. In high school, I was shy, studious, and, for a while, deeply religious. In college, I was fun-loving and boy-crazy. Now, I'm a basically hermetic, pressure addict, as one former editor put it. It was time for yet another me to make her debut. Ideally, in the end, I would be happy, relaxed, personable. The screams of angry sources, the failure of my boyfriend to do the tiniest fucking thing, they would be nothing to me. I would finally understand what my therapist means when she says I should just observe my thoughts and let them pass without judgment. I made a list of the challenges and attached them to my nightstand, because I'm very conscientious. Immediately, I encountered a problem. I don't like improv. It's basically a Quaker meeting in which a bunch of office workers sit quietly in a circle until someone jumps up, points toward a corner of the room, and says, I think I found my kangaroo. My vibe is less yes and and more well actually. When I told my boyfriend what I was up to, he said, you doing improv is like Larry David doing ice hockey. I was also scared out of my mind. I hate looking silly. And that's all improv is. The first night, we met in someone's townhouse in Washington, D.C., in a room that was, for no discernible reason, decorated with dozens of elephant sculptures. Right after the instructor said, let's get started, I began hoping that someone would grab one and knock me unconscious. That didn't happen, so instead I played a game called Zip Zap Zop, which involved making lots of eye contact while tossing around an imaginary ball of energy with a software engineer, two lawyers, and a guy who works on Capitol Hill. Then we pretended to be traveling salespeople peddling sulfuric acid. If someone had walked in on us, they would have thought we were insane. And yet, I didn't hate it. I decided... I could think of being funny and spontaneous as a kind of intellectual challenge. Still, when I got home, I unwound by drinking one of those single-serving wines meant for petite female alcoholics. A few days later, I logged into my first Zoom anger management class. Christian Jarrett, a neuroscientist and the author of Be Who You Want, writes that spending quality time with people who are dissimilar to you increases agreeableness. And the people in my anger management class 
did seem pretty different from me. Among other things, I was the only person who wasn't court-ordered to be there. We took turns sharing how anger has affected our lives. I said it makes my relationship worse, less like a romantic partnership and more like a toxic workplace. Other people worried that their anger was hurting their family. One guy shared that he didn't understand why we were talking about our feelings when kids in China and Russia were learning to make weapons, which I deemed an interesting point because you're not allowed to criticize others in anger management. The sessions, I went to six, mostly involved reading worksheets together, which was tedious, but I did learn a few things. Anger is driven by expectations. If you think you're going to be in an anger-inducing situation, one instructor said, try drinking a cold can of Coke, which may stimulate your vagus nerve and calm you down. A few weeks in, I had a rough day. My boyfriend gave me some stupid suggestions, and I yelled at him. Then he said I'm just like my dad, which made me yell more. When I shared this in anger management, the instructor said I should be clearer about what I need from him when I'm in a bad mood, which is listening, not advice. All the while, I had been working on my neuroticism, which involved making a lot of gratitude lists. Sometimes it came naturally. As I drove around my little town one morning, I thought about how grateful I was for my boyfriend and how lonely I had been before I met him, even in other relationships. Is this gratitude? I wondered. Am I doing it? What is personality anyway, and where does it come from? Contrary to conventional wisdom about bossy firstborns and peacemaking middles, birth order doesn't influence personality, nor do our parents shape us like lumps of clay. If they did, siblings would have similar dispositions, when they often have no more in common than strangers chosen off the street. Our friends do influence us, though, so one way to become more extroverted is to befriend some extroverts. Your life circumstances also have an effect. Getting rich can make you less agreeable, but so can growing up poor with high levels of lead exposure. A common estimate is that about 30 to 50% of the differences between two people's personalities are attributable to their genes. But just because something is genetic doesn't mean it's permanent. Those genes interact with one another in ways that can change how they behave, says Catherine Page Harden, a behavioral geneticist at the University of Texas. They also interact with your environment in ways that can change how you behave. For example, happy people smile more, so people react more positively to them, which makes them even more agreeable. Open-minded adventure seekers are more likely to go to college, where they grow even more open-minded. Hardin told me about an experiment in which mice that were genetically similar and reared in the same conditions were moved into a big cage where they could play with one another. Over time, these very similar mice developed dramatically different personalities. Some became fearful, others sociable and dominant. Living in Mouseville, the mice carved out their own ways of being, and people do that too. We can think of personality as a learning process, Hardin said. We learn to be people who interact with our social environments in a certain way. 
This more fluid understanding of personality is a departure from earlier theories. A 1914 bestseller called The Eugenic Marriage, which is exactly as offensive as it sounds, argued that it is not possible to change a child's personality one particle after conception takes place. In the 1920s, the psychoanalyst Carl Jung posited that the world consists of different types of people, thinkers and feelers, introverts and extroverts. Even Jung cautioned, though, that there is no such thing as a pure extrovert or a pure introvert. Such a man would be in the lunatic asylum. Jung's rubric captured the attention of a mother-daughter duo, Catherine Briggs and Isabel Briggs Myers, neither of whom had any formal scientific training. As Mervé Emray describes in The Personality Brokers, the pair seized on Jung's ideas to develop that staple of career day, the Myers-Briggs type indicator. But the test is virtually meaningless. Most people aren't ENTJs or ISFPs. They fall between categories. Over the years, poor parenting has been a popular scapegoat for bad personalities. Alfred Adler, a prominent turn-of-the-20th-century psychologist, blamed mothers, writing that, "...wherever the mother-child relationship is unsatisfactory, we usually find certain social defects in the children." A few scholars attributed the rise of Nazism to strict German parenting that produced hateful people who worshipped power and authority. But maybe any nation could have embraced a Hitler. It turns out that the average personalities of different countries are fairly similar. Still, the belief that parents are to blame persists, so much so that Roberts closes the course he teaches at the University of Illinois by asking students to forgive their moms and dads for whatever personality traits they believe were instilled or inherited. Not until the 1950s did researchers acknowledge people's versatility, that we can reveal new faces and bury others. Everyone is always and everywhere, more or less consciously, playing a role, the sociologist Robert Ezra Park wrote in 1950. It is in these roles that we know each other. It is in these roles that we know ourselves. Around this time, a psychologist named George Kelly began prescribing specific roles for his patients to play. Awkward wallflowers might go socialize in nightclubs, for example. Kelly's was a rhapsodic view of change. At one point, he wrote that all of us would be better off if we set out to be something other than what we are. Judging by the reams of self-help literature published each year, this is one of the few philosophies all Americans can get behind. About six weeks in, my adventures and extroversion were going better than I'd anticipated, Intent on talking to strangers at my friend's wedding, I approached a group of women and told them the story of how my boyfriend and I had met. I moved into his former room in a group house, which they deemed the story of the night. On the winds of that success, I tried to talk to more strangers, but soon encountered the common wedding problem of too drunk to talk to people who don't know me. For more advice on becoming an extrovert, I reached out to Jessica Pan, 
a writer in London and the author of the book Sorry I'm Late, I Didn't Want to Come. Pan was an extreme introvert, someone who would walk into parties and immediately walk out again. At the start of the book, she resolved to become an extrovert. She ran up to strangers and asked them embarrassing questions. She did improv and stand-up comedy. She went to Budapest and made a friend. Folks, she networked. In the process, Pan flung open the doors to her life, she writes. Having the ability to morph, to change, to try on free traits, to expand or contract at will, offers me an incredible feeling of freedom and a source of hope. Pan told me that she didn't quite become a hardcore extrovert, but that she would now describe herself as a gregarious introvert. She still craves alone time, but she's more willing to talk to strangers and give speeches. I will be anxious, but I can do it, she said. I asked her for advice on making new friends, and she told me something a friendship mentor once told her. Make the first move, and make the second move, too. That means you sometimes have to ask a friend target out twice in a row, a strategy I had thought was gauche. I practiced by trying to befriend some female journalists I admired but had been too intimidated to get to know. I messaged someone who seemed cool based on her writing, and we arranged a casual beers thing. But on the night we were supposed to get together, her power went out, trapping her car in her garage. Instead, I caught up with an old friend by phone, and we had one of those conversations you can have only with someone you've known for years, about how the people who are the worst remain the worst, and how all of your issues remain intractable, but good on you for sticking with it. By the end of our talk, I was high on agreeable feelings. Love you, bye, I said as I hung up. LOL, she texted. Did you mean to say I love you? Who was this new Olga? For my gratitude journaling, I purchased a notebook whose cover said, Gimme those bright, sunshiny vibes. I soon noticed, though, that my gratitude lists were repetitive odes to creature comforts and entertainment. Netflix, yoga, TikTok, leggings, wine. After I cut my finger cooking, I expressed gratitude for the dictation software that let me write without using my hands, but then my finger healed. Very hard to come up with new things to say, I wrote one day. I find expressing gratitude unnatural because Russians believe doing so will provoke the evil eye. Our God doesn't like too much bragging. The writer Gretchen Rubin hit a similar wall when keeping a gratitude journal for her book The Happiness Project. It had started to feel forced and affected, she wrote, making her annoyed rather than grateful. I was also supposed to be meditating, but I couldn't. On almost every page, my journal reads, Meditating sucks. I tried a guided meditation that involved breathing with a heavy book on my stomach. I chose Nabokov's Letters to Vera, only to find that it's really hard to breathe with a heavy book on your stomach. I tweeted about my meditation failures, and Dan Harris, a former Good Morning America weekend anchor, replied, The fact that you're noticing the thoughts slash obsessions is proof that you are doing it correctly. 
I picked up Harris's book, 10% Happier, which chronicles his journey from a high-strung reporter who had a panic attack on air to a high-strung reporter who meditates a lot. At one point, he was meditating for two hours a day. When I called Harris, he said that it's normal for meditation to feel like training your mind to not be a pack of wild squirrels all the time. Very few people actually clear their minds when they're meditating. The point is to focus on your breath for however long you can, even if it's just a second before you get distracted. Then do it over and over again. Occasionally, when Harris meditates, he still rehearses some grand, expletive-filled speech I'm going to deliver to someone who's wronged me. But now he can return to his breath more quickly, or just laugh off the obsessing. Harris suggested that I try loving-kindness meditation, in which you beam affectionate thoughts toward yourself and others. This, he said, sets off what I call a gooey upward spiral, where, as your inner weather gets balmier, your relationships get better. In his book, Harris describes meditating on his two-year-old niece, as he thought about her little feet and sweet face with her mischievous eyes, he started crying uncontrollably. What a pussy, I thought. I downloaded Harris's meditation app and pulled up a loving-kindness session by the meditation teacher Sharon Salzberg. She had me repeat calming phrases like, May you be safe, and May you live with ease. Then she asked me to envision myself surrounded by a circle of people who love me, radiating kindness toward me. I pictured my family, my boyfriend, my friends, my former professors, emitting beneficence from their bellies like care bears. You're good. You're okay, I imagined them saying. Before I knew what was happening, I had broken into sobs. After two brutal years, people may be wondering if surviving a pandemic has at least improved their personality, making them kinder and less likely to sweat the small stuff. Post-traumatic growth, or the idea that stressful events can make us better people, is the subject of one particularly cheery branch of psychology. Some big events do seem to transform personality. People grow more conscientious when they start a job they like, and they become less neurotic when they enter a romantic relationship. But in general, it's not the event that changes your personality. It's the way you experience it. And the evidence that people grow as a result of difficulty is mixed. Studies of post-traumatic growth are tainted by the fact that people like to say they got something out of their trauma. It's a nice thing to believe about yourself, that, pummeled by misfortune, you've emerged stronger than ever. But these studies are mostly finding that people prefer to look on the bright side. In more rigorous studies, evidence of a transformative effect fades. Damien, the University of Houston psychologist, gave hundreds of students at the university a personality test a few months after Hurricane Harvey hit in November 2017, and repeated the test a year later. The hurricane was devastating. Many students had to leave their homes. Others lacked food, water, or medical care for weeks. 
Damien found that her participants hadn't grown and they hadn't shriveled. Overall, they stayed the same. Other research shows that difficult times prompt us to fall back on tried-and-true behaviors and traits, not experiment with new ones. Growth is also a strange thing to ask of the traumatized. It's like turning to a wounded person and demanding, Well, why didn't you grow, you lazy son of a bitch? Robert said. Just surviving should be enough. It may be impossible to know how the pandemic will change us on average, because there is no average. Some people have struggled to keep their jobs while caring for children. Some have lost their jobs. Some have lost loved ones. Others have sat at home and ordered takeout. The pandemic probably hasn't changed you if the pandemic itself hasn't felt like that much of a change. I blew off anger management one week to go see Kesha in concert. I justified it because the concert was a group activity. Plus, she makes me happy. The next time the class gathered, we talked about forgiveness, which child weapons guy was not big on. He said that rather than forgive his enemies, he wanted to invite them onto a bridge and light the bridge on fire. I thought he should get credit for being honest. Who hasn't wanted to light all their enemies on fire? But the anger management instructors started to look a little angry themselves. In the next session, child weapons guy seemed contrite, saying he realized that he uses his anger to deal with life, which was a bigger breakthrough than anyone expected. I was also praised for an unusually tranquil trip home to see my parents, which my instructors said was an example of good expectation management. Meanwhile, my social life was slowly blooming. A Twitter acquaintance invited me and a few other strangers to a whiskey tasting, and I said yes, even though I don't like whiskey or strangers. At the bar, I made some normal person small talk before having two sips of alcohol and wheeling the conversation around to my personal topic of interest, whether I should have a baby. The woman who organized the tasting, a self-proclaimed extrovert, said people are always grateful to her for getting everyone to socialize. At first, no one wants to come, but people are always happy they did. I thought perhaps whiskey could be my thing, and to tick off another challenge from Hudson's list, decided to go to a whiskey bar on my own one night and talk to strangers. I bravely steered my Toyota to a sad little mixed-use development and pulled up a stool at the bar. I asked the bartender how long it had taken him to memorize all the whiskeys on the menu. Two months, he said, and turned back to peeling oranges. I asked the woman sitting next to me how she liked her appetizer. It's good, she said. This is awful, I thought. I texted my boyfriend to come meet me. The larger threat on my horizon was the Improv Showcase, a free performance for friends and family and whoever happened to jog past Picnic Grove Number 1 in Rock Creek Park. The night before, I kept jolting awake from intense, improv-themed nightmares. I spent the day grimly watching old Upright Citizens Brigade shows on YouTube. I'm nervous on your behalf, my boyfriend said when he saw me clutching a throw pillow like a life preserver. To describe an improv show, 
is to unnecessarily punish the reader, but it went fairly well. Along with crushing anxiety, my brain courses with an immigrant kid's overwhelming desire to do whatever people want in exchange for their approval. I improvised like they were giving out good SAT scores at the end. On the drive home, my boyfriend said, Now that I've seen you do it, I don't really know why I thought it's something you wouldn't do. I didn't know either. I vaguely remembered past boyfriends telling me that I'm insecure, that I'm not funny. But why had I been trying to prove them right? Surviving improv made me feel like I could survive anything. As bratty as that must sound to all my ancestors who survived the siege of Leningrad. Finally, the day came to retest my personality and see how much I'd changed. I thought I felt hints of a mild metamorphosis. I was meditating regularly and had had several enjoyable get-togethers with people I wanted to befriend. And because I was writing them down, I had to admit that positive things did, in fact, happen to me. But I wanted hard data. This time, the test told me that my extroversion had increased, going from the 23rd percentile to the 33rd. My neuroticism decreased from extremely high to merely very high, dropping to the 77th percentile. And my agreeableness score, well, it dropped from about average to low. I told Brian Little how I'd done, he said I likely did experience a modest shift in extroversion and neuroticism, but also that I might have simply triggered positive feedback loops. I got out more, so I enjoyed more things, so I went to more things, and so forth. Why didn't I become more agreeable, though? I had spent months dwelling on the goodness of people, devoted hours to anger management, and even sent an e-card to my mom— Little speculated that maybe by behaving so differently, I had heightened my internal sense that people aren't to be trusted. Or I might have subconsciously bucked against all this syrupy gratitude time. That I had tried so hard and made negative progress? I think it's a bit of a hoot, he said. Perhaps it's a relief that I'm not a completely new person. Little says that engaging in free trait behavior, acting outside your nature for too long can be harmful because you can start to feel like you are suppressing your true self. You end up feeling burned out or cynical. The key may not be in swinging permanently to the other side of the personality scale, but in balancing between extremes or in adjusting your personality depending on the situation. The thing that makes a personality trait maladaptive is not being high or low on something. It's more like rigidity across situations, Hardin, the behavioral geneticist, told me. So it's okay to be a little bitchy in your heart as long as you can turn it off? I asked her. People who say they're never bitchy in their heart are lying, she said. Susan Cain, the author of Quiet and the World's Most Famous Introvert, seems reluctant to endorse the idea that introverts should try to be more outgoing. Over the phone, she wondered why I wanted to be more extroverted in the first place. 
Society often urges people to conform to the qualities extolled in performance reviews, punctual, chipper, gregarious. But there are upsides to being introspective, skeptical, and even a little neurotic. She said it's possible that I didn't change my underlying introversion, that I just acquired new skills. She thought I could probably maintain this new personality so long as I kept doing the tasks that got me here. Hudson cautioned that personality scores can bounce around a bit from moment to moment. To be certain of my results, I ideally would have taken the test a number of times. Still, I felt sure that some change had taken place. A few weeks later, I wrote an article that made people on Twitter really mad. This happens to me once or twice a year, and I usually suffer a minor internal apocalypse. I fight the people on Twitter while crying, call my editor while crying, and Google how to become an actuary while crying. This time, I was stressed and angry, but I just waited it out. This kind of modest improvement, I realized, is the goal of so much self-help material. Hours a day of meditation made Harris only 10% happier. My therapist is always suggesting ways for me to go from a 10 to a 9 on anxiety. Some antidepressants make people feel only slightly less depressed, yet they take the drugs for years. Perhaps the real weakness of the change-your-personality proposition is that it implies incremental change isn't real change. But being slightly different is still being different. The same you, but with better armor. The late psychologist Carl Rogers once wrote, When I accept myself just as I am, then I can change. And this is roughly where I've landed. Maybe I'm just an anxious little introvert who makes an effort to be less so. I can learn to meditate. I can talk to strangers. I can be the mouse who frolics through Mouseville, even if I never become the alpha. I learned to play the role of a calm, extroverted softy, and in doing so, I got to know myself. If you enjoyed this production, find the best long-form articles read aloud in the Autumn app, available now for iPhone and Android.